Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community. Hi again and welcome to the Northern New York Community Podcast. I'm your host, Max Del Signor. We hope you enjoy this community story featuring Ben and Peggy Coe. While having grown up in two different parts of the country or different parts of the U.S., respectively, they've spent a substantial part of their adult lives making the North Country better. No matter the cause or commitment, they have been advocates for Northern New York and the organizations and groups that make it whole. To learn more about where their core values come from and their personal efforts in helping the region thrive, we're honored to have them here on the podcast. And Ben and Peggy, we certainly appreciate your time and willingness being here today. So thanks for joining us. Thank you. Also, as part of our conversation today, the Executive Director of the Northern New York Community Foundation, Randy Richardson, is here to have a few questions and be part of the conversation. Uh, to open up, I thought we would mention kind of the beginning for two of you and that you're not natives of the North Country. Could you just share with us a little bit about where you're from and, and where you grew up? Well, I was born in New York State in Brooklyn. Uh, I think I lived, you know, a few months in, there and then we moved to New Jersey. Then we were in Pennsylvania. Then we were in Illinois. Then we were in Indiana and back to New Jersey a couple of times. So I was used to moving. I was an only child. I still have friends from every place that I've lived that I still am in contact with after over 70 years. Yeah. And was the reason for moving to the different My communities? My dad was an electrical engineer, and he ended up in sales, was really good at it. <laughs> and Ben, you grew up on the other side of the coast in the United States. Right. Yeah, my dad was a uh, naval officer, and uh, we followed his, sh his ship, usually a destroyer, up and down the West Coast and Hawaiian Islands. And uh, so I was in two or three, four schools a year. So like Peggy, it made me fairly flexible. <laughs> what do you remember most about a childhood where you spent such brief times in these communities. Um, you know, Peggy, you mentioned that you're able to have relationships from all the places that you've been and still have those to this day. W was it tough to really kind of get entrenched in the culture of a community at first when we were children because you were moving to different places? I didn't find it so, no. I'm, you know, when you're in school, you make friends right away. And if you're in something like Girl Scouts or something. You have a set of friends that you're with a lot. So when we moved to Indianapolis, uh, I have my high school friends there, and then we moved to Winchester, Mass, and I, my senior year in high school. Now we have friends from our high school days, and now college, it's, uh, we get together with my college friends every year. Can you share the story of how you and Ben met? <laughs> oh, well, let's see. My family moved to Winchester, Massachusetts when I was, well, the end of my freshman year in high school. Uh, it was still during World War II. And, uh, but Dad was assigned to the 1st Naval District in Boston. And so anyway, we settled in Winchester, Massachusetts. And my senior year, just before the senior year, Peggy moved to town and I met her. I was an only child as well, so we called each other brother and sister. You want to pick it up from there? <laughs> <laughs> well, I sat between Ben and his girlfriend because we were 
alphabetical. So it was Norma Burquist, Peggy Butler, and Ben Coe. So I was the note passer. But we never dated, but we double dated all the time. And through high school and college. And then I got my first job in Boston, and Ben was still at MIT. And we're driving into town, and my dad says, I said to my dad, by the way, Ben Coe is here. My dad says, we're taking him out to dinner. And my mother says, he's such a good eater. <laughs> Which was very high praise from my mother. And the rest is history. <laughs> so after the two of you meet, uh, an opportunity arises to finally make your way to the North Country. Um, ben, can you talk a little bit about what the opportunity was and how you and Peggy arrived here in Watertown and, and the North Country? Yeah, I uh, had been involved. Well, I was, uh, had been the executive director of an organization called Volunteers for International Technical Assistance, and that was started up by GE scientists and engineers. He had started in GE there. I spent 12 years with GE uh, before that. Uh, so when that, that organization moved to D.C., to Washington, D.C., I started looking for a job, and uh, I answered an ad in the Wall Street Journal and for the uh, job as executive director of the newly established Tug Hill Commission, temporary state commission on Tug Hill at the time. I answered that ad, and we came up, and... I uh, somehow was selected to do that job, which was an amazing, uh, turned out to be an amazing uh, opportunity and experience for me, and for Peggy too. We've always done everything together, really. What did you know about the North Country before you arrived here? I knew virtually nothing about it. I had never been to Watertown until my interview. We didn't but, know anybody here. He brought me up in October after he had accepted the job. And we were driving along the Black River coming north and the trees were, it, the place was aflame. I mean, the trees were so beautiful and everything and we climbed the fire tower and outside a turn someplace and uh, had this wonderful view and then we ate at the Hulbert house, and <laughs> well, we were hooked. <laughs> I was just going to ask, was that, was, were those memories the moments that you said, maybe this is where we would like to settle? No. It took a while. No, because you have the... when you're coming to a temporary state commission, you, you don't make that kind of decision. But we got to know people in a hurry. We were welcomed by a lot of folks and asked to get involved. Of course, with the Tug Hill Commission, I was out meeting people in the towns in this four-county area that the commission was involved with. And uh, so we met a lot of people, got to know the countryside. Enjoyed the snow? Yeah. Two weeks after we were here, Ben bought me a pair of snowshoes so I could get to the market. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned that you got involved or were asked to get involved right away, but you had, you had had some experiences, as you, as you alluded to already. You know, was that one of the main things you wanted to do once you arrived in Watertown? Who can we help and where can we 
uh, play a role in this community? Well, you really want to fit in to a community. And why not get involved in the things that you already believe in? So for me, at first, it was the church, Girl Scouts, Bird Club, uh, Historical Society. Those were really the first things that... Uh, and then Katherine Johnson came. Oh, Katherine Johnson said I had to come and be on the board of the <laughs> Minna-Anthony Common Nature Center. And I spent 20 years on that board. She was a terrific leader. A lot of those, those values you already had, it seemed. You know, when being asked to help, it didn't seem like you wavered. Where did some of those values come from when you were younger? And what might some of those have been? Well, I think those values for me came in Schenectady as we learned about giving in the church there. Peggy really brought me into the Episcopal Church. And then when I left, uh, left General Electric to become a part of Vita, I had to learn how to raise money. That was quite a, an eye-opener. It taught me you know, why people give and why I would feel like giving. And I got involved with the United Way there. So I think it all started in those days. Peggy, you were responsible, I think, in many ways um, for being the founder of the AAUW and really getting the chapter started here in Jefferson County. I had been very active in Schenectady. There was a very large branch of AAUW there. And I had sort of worked my, you know, I'd had different jobs and finally became president. And at that time, there were 700 members of that branch. And I had been to a national convention. And uh, then I was state treasurer. And we moved up here, and there was no local branch. There was a very nice college women's club, and they had about 300 members. But they had monthly programs. But they didn't do programming, and they didn't really have a mission like AAUW has. So to provide opportunities for women and girls, particularly in education, in society, essentially. I joined College Women's Club and talked to them about AAUW, and there were several reasons why they couldn't, we couldn't merge. We had 50 charter members for our branch, and, and we coexisted for quite a while. And it was fine because people belonged to both, and it was, it was a, a good arrangement. What were the keys, you think, to creating that kind of collaboration and bringing some of that leadership together into a really uh, focused cohort model? Well, I think believing in the mission of AAUW. Philanthropy is one of the cornerstones, uh, advocacy but, and research, but philanthropy is one of the, the, the cornerstones. I, I think that's probably what appealed to people. And there, were, there was lots to do about, you know, as it turned out, that uh, Title IX was just sort of beginning, or maybe it hadn't even begun then, about equal opportunities for women and girls in sports and other things. We were interested in, well, of course, the whole domestic violence uh, problem and what could be done to mitigate the, some of the problems that these, these women were going through. So that, that was, I would say, was sort of just a, 
an outgrowth of just the, the sense that women had. What, what were some of the challenges? Were there any challenges? Um, you know, that was a very clear community need that, you know, it you and others... wasn't that clear. Well, there <laughs> were, I should everybody. say... <laughs> well, and I, I think the way I was going was there, there are clear community needs that are visible. This was one that was not. It was not visible. So as, as a group, bringing that to the forefront of everybody's mind when thinking about uh, taking care of their own and folks who have this need in the community, what were some of the challenges? Were there challenges you had to face as you were bringing this and raising the visibility for the effort? It, it was difficult because... People in Watertown really didn't want to believe there was a problem, and you can't blame them for that. So what we did is that the YWCA gave us a, a place on the square where we could say we were the women's center. And uh, sometimes we paid them, and sometimes we didn't pay them any rent. And then we had a shelter on the third floor after a year or so, and we... It, Ben helped write some grants too to, to fund this so that we could hire an executive director. And you really had to have somebody there and you had to have somebody be up in the shelter with people. And children were welcome in the shelter because most w women will not leave, of course they won't leave their kids at home. Gradually people began to understand that this, this was a real problem and when you start getting doctor's wives, lawyer's wives, uh, people uh, who are well-known in the community and their spouses are coming in for, for help, you realize how pervasive this problem can be. It's not, uh, it's not the homeless. <laughs> and so then we started hooking up with people in the, you know, the wider community and statewide and so can you share an example, I think just for the audience to understand, um, can you share an example or two of the type of care and service being provided when you were in the YWCA and as you were just beginning to start the effort in helping these families? Well, uh, it was a place for a woman could be safe. And quite often, I have to say, that it, you know, they would be safe for a while and then They'd get a bouquet of red roses, or they'd, uh, <laughs> and they'd figure the guy wasn't so bad after all, and they'd go back. And then, you know, it's, there was a lot of repeats there. Uh, and, and you can understand that. When you have some success in pointing people in the right direction, people who need medical care, people who need some kind of job, uh, people need, who need housing, and then you go work through DSS and, and they get all these support services. You're sort of the center of support services that way. It grows, but it takes a long time. It was a long time. And you were very much, I mean, that effort in many ways was the impetus for the Victims Assistance Center. Oh yeah, the, it morphed, morphed, morphed <laughs> into that. <laughs> <laughs> and the way that agency has evolved over time, I mean, in having, um, you know, your input and your expertise behind that to help. What have you, as you kind of ref reflect back now, how the organization has changed and impacted this area? You know, wh what do you think have been some of the greatest accomplishments uh, for that agency? Well, people now know where to go. And because they're on the New York State network of, for 
victims assistance centers. You know, the ad comes up on television, there's a phone number there. Domestic violence is now, people talk about that now. You know, they didn't talk about that in 1977. I think probably the visibility is now, now good. People don't know where the shelter is. They, they did build a, a, a shelter. They are in a, in a safe location and they're open 24-7. They have people who staff that can go to the hospital in case of serious trauma or rape, and they can help with lawyers. So it's, it's really expanded far beyond what we envisioned in the beginning. How does it make you feel oh, to see how far it's, it's come? It's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it's, it's had good leadership, so that's, that's really important. Ben, you know a little bit about leadership, too. Given your investment and in time into starting another organization here, Volunteer Transportation Center, and being at the ground floor for that, what were the, you know, the early years like in taking a need, a great need, too, and figuring out a way that you can provide or create an infrastructure that folks could have transportation to get different places in this area? Well, it started out in uh, 1989, and the Fort Drum expansion was on us, uh, upon us. And by then I was either vice president or president of the United Way. And uh, it was then just United Way of Jefferson County. Now it's three counties, but um, I felt that there was a need for a traditional volunteer center where you go out and recruit people to help different organizations where they need volunteers of certain types with certain skills. And we got the United Way to try that out, to open up an office. Uh, we raised some money and the United Way matched it. And, but we found that in a community this size, and I'm talking not just Watertown, but greater Jefferson County, people knew each other well enough and knew what was around pretty much. So that wasn't uh, a great need and you couldn't raise money for it very effectively here for that reason. But we did have Office for the Aging come to us and say, look, we need volunteer transportation. We need to get uh, older people to medical appointments and to other activities. So might you consider recruiting volunteers to drive their cars and, and deliver people to these destinations? And uh, we looked at that and decided we would do that. And in short time, there was enough need that that was all we decided we would do. That grew. Trying to keep up with the fundraising side of that was, was uh, not easy. And we got a lot of help from the foundation at key points in our history. In the 90s and as late as 2009, where we had a major grant because we had overexpended, uh, accepting too many requests, and uh, we got a major grant from the foundation. and. Uh, and that started us off in uh, a more controlled fashion, but essentially wiped out the debt that we had built by doing too many transports. <laughs> yeah, I remember that. 
You remember that I do, well, Randy. I do, I do. Uh, that was very significant and interesting history in that organization because uh, before that, we had uh, a lot of demands and hadn't really figured out how to raise enough money and we thought of merging with some other organizations. And uh, actually, well, we had Nurkel, Eileen uh, Martin, who uh, got some funding from the state of New York to take a look at what the greatest needs were among the uh, people with disabilities that they served. And transportation rose right to the top. So uh, she applied for a grant and approached us to do transportation for that group of people uh, served by NERCL, Northern Independent Regional, Northern Regional Center for Independent Living. Thank you, Andy. <laughs> and based on that, we decided not to merge. We had enough funds to hire an executive director. Before that, actually, I was acting as a volunteer director, executive director, and we had one staff person. That launched us on a path that uh, led to the growth and development of the organization independently, which was very important. Uh, we wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for that move that came at the right time, uh, thanks to Eileen. Well, and the, the growth and now sustainability of the organization, to be in three counties and to have that kind of impact um, for a need that's still so vital, when you look back again, you reflect to see where the organization is today. How does how does it make you feel to, to know that the VTC is on some strong grounding? Well, it feels great, and it uh, I think it owes owes a lot to uh, Sam Purrington, who's the executive director, who's been able to lead the organization in that direction with a with a strong, dedicated board of directors. Five million miles last year. It's amazing. And it could be higher, I'm sure, too. Oh, it's going to be higher this year because St. Lawrence County is taking off. And they have a, an office now in Canton. You know, one thing that's interesting in, in visiting with the two of you is, and we've talked about this a little before, is you do like to give together. You know, if, if you're thinking of what you're going to invest your, your time and your talent and your resources, your energy into something, you, you seemingly always do it together, no matter the cause. Um, explain what that means to you to be able to give together. Well, we, we tend to think alike. We have the same values. We're interested in a lot of the same things, but there are certain things that Ben is more interested in than I am and vice versa. But we respect that commitment. You know, if Ben was working 40 hours a week as a volunteer executive director for the Volunteer Transportation Center, that was fine with me because I believed in the Volunteer Transportation Center. I even did some drives and things like that. So uh, we've always sort of worked together. And when the Victims Assistance Center was really right down to its last nickel, Ben wrote a couple of grants for that, meant that we could hire somebody to be in the office. We do appreciate what each other does. I was governor of a district of Rotary, our district, 
that's part of uh, not just northern New York over from here over to Plattsburgh, but a uh, large part of Ontario and Quebec. Ontario, including Ottawa, Quebec, including Montreal and the Laurentian. And uh, so I had to go visit every club in this Rotary District, and Peggy came with me to visit all but three. She was with I drove, me driving, and I, I was trying to figure out what I was I drove 10,000 miles, and he, he worked. So it's been a real partnership, and we each have our things, but we uh, work together on a lot of things and bounce ideas off e each other, which has always been really helpful. So, it, and in that respect, obviously you have to believe in the, the work and the mission of a project or an organization you're supporting, but what other things do you look for when you're considering making a commitment, either time or financially, as far as an organization? What do you expect from that organization? Well, I guess we expect that the organization would use our money wisely and would have us use our time on projects that would be helpful. I don't think we've had any trouble with things that we've supported. I think we've looked at an organization maybe being asked to do something for an organization and uh, deciding that it was something that we really like to do and something that we believed in. So we tend to, when we get involved with something, we tend to get up to our... <laughs> Be all in. Yeah. Be all in. Uh, but we know from long experience what kind of a team you have to build to make something work well and what to watch out for to avoid uh, getting out of line and into trouble. Because it is not easy to not run a nonprofit organization. And the person who runs it has a, a wide open number of things they can do. In many ways, it's more difficult than uh, a business that has a clear focus. A volunteer organization that needs to raise money for what they do has to make uh, choices on what their mission and plan to carry it out must be, and you can't do everything. I think we've been able to help both of us in helping to guide organizations, helping to bring in people who could work together for good and could help raise the money needed and so on. You know, one, one of the reasons that we're doing this is we know these stories are going to be retold to the next generation. And uh, I'd like to get your sense of, one, how you feel what you've done is going to help with that and what more can be done to continue to make sure that we have this same type of thinking in our community in the future? Well, one thing we talked about with Max was that for a number of Christmases now, we, with our children, we asked them to give, instead of something material, to give a donation to, to a charity that either they really support or that we support. And in turn, we do that for them. And I know that they all give gifts, but I was particularly touched at this particular, this birthday, I got a, a card from Mount Holyoke saying that our granddaughter had given 
money to the Mount Holyoke Alumni Fund in my name, in honor of my birthday. So we're sort of at an age where we really don't need stuff so that the, that kind of giving. So I know our grandson does the same thing and I, I'm sure our other grandkids will, will because they, they have the example of their parents now. Getting youth involved is really extremely important and uh, I know the foundation has done yeah, sure. some really youth good things. Philanthropy program is great. Uh, what a wonderful. And Rotary has tried to do that kind of thing too. Programs, one's called Interact that has to do with uh, sort of miniature Rotary clubs in the high school. And Rotaract is at the college level. And the more of that, the better because are uh, really the only way to teach that is is by example and by giving an opportunity to volunteer to raise money for something they, be they believe in and that those first donations that a young person or a young family gives and what they choose to give and the satisfaction they get is uh, the key I think to this country's philanthropy. I want to follow up on that. So let me present a scenario. If you had a group of school students before you and you were sharing a message about the importance of philanthropy and giving for that first time, what would your message be to them about how important it is to give for that first time? Could be financially, could be just a volunteer. What would that message be from you to, to the youth? Well, look, one would be to look around your community. Open your eyes and see what you think some of the problems are and some of the needs are. Make a connection with organizations that are involved or dream up something on your own and give your first volunteer hour and your first dollar. And once you do that, you begin to understand philanthropy. It's the act of the first time doing it. Because once you've done it once, then you realize the benefits, not only to the organization, but to yourself. What are those benefits to yourself? Well, I, I think it makes us better people, better citizens. We're more aware of what's going on in a community maybe makes us more sympathetic. I think we learned a lot from our church membership over the years and that our purpose on earth is to serve and not be served. And we're following the message of what we've learned in the Bible and by those who teach it. And there's no higher calling than to be a servant. You could have settled anywhere in the U.S. and you've, you've lived in many places. Why have you made the North Country your home? We like it here. <laughs> in what ways? Well, we're comfortable here. There's no beltway. That's really a, nice. <laughs> Hate beltways. We like the snow. 
we started cross-country skiing here and that's that's a plus and we like being this close to the border because we have a lot of Rotarian friends across the border and we go to plays and restaurants and things you know they're our neighbors and we're delighted to be a neighbor of Canada and of course it's beautiful here I mean it's think of the the water and the greenery and all the recreational opportunities just right at hand. We really, when we travel to a city of any size, we're so grateful to get back here. <laughs> <laughs> of course, driving in traffic becomes more difficult as you get older, but uh, it never was any fun. Get off the plane and get on Route 81 and breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> You touched on this a little bit, but I, I want to go back briefly um, with regards to the Christmas story. And I think it would be important to hear you articulate for those that will be, will be listening or are listening, how important is sharing the concept of philanthropy with your family? It's obviously made an impact, but for those that maybe haven't demonstrated it with their own children yet, how important has philanthropy meant in, in sharing those values with your family members, your kids, your grandkids? Well, because has been said it's really important that the next generations practice giving and I think that uh, our kids understand that by giving maybe we're they're going to get a few dollars less after we're gone they've all been totally supportive and maybe if they haven't thought about it yet which is possible. I mean, we, we started the Christmas giving, what, maybe six, seven years ago? Yeah. So, you know, we were already almost 80 by then. So it's... Uh, uh, I think my parents started doing some of that too. We may have been influenced I'm I them. think they did, yeah. And I'm sure my parents gave, but I, it was never never obvious to me, but they were giving people, so. I think we, we learned in the church about proportional giving, where you try to have a uh, target of what you think you can do. And for us, it started as a very low percentage. But gradually, your target is the tithe. And we interpreted that as not just giving, uh, not giving 10% to a specific church, but giving 10% to, Total to that we, uh, in causes that help the community and, and the individuals in it, and other things we believe in, like supporting the arts. And well, and that type of philanthropy um, has been part of this community's fabric for many, many years. And what you've demonstrated together has been another terrific example of the, the impact and the importance of philanthropy in this region. How important is continuing with philanthropy? How, how, how important is that to the future of the North Country as a whole? Well, I, th I think that people who might consider moving here might look to see how the charitable 
institutions are supported? Do people support the historical society? Do they support the library? Do they support different things in a, the United Way, the foundation? We have a pretty strong infrastructure here in the North Country. Yeah, We've been fortunate. we do, we and do. Part, I think that came from the Fort Drum growth. It really spurred uh, recognition that we've got to help each other build this community. So increasing awareness, the program, the youth philanthropy, and, and people now know about the, the foundation. I can't think of anybody that we know who doesn't know about the foundation. And, and what it does. It just makes the, the community s stronger. If you live in a community where everybody's selfish, uh, I, it doesn't seem like it would be a very happy, happy place to live. You know, you've been a long time advocate and supporter of the foundation. What would you say you, you appreciate and like best about what a community foundation brings to a community? Well, one would be participation. You've found ways through advised funds and similar funds established, uh, named funds. Designated funds, yeah. I know Tug Hill Tomorrow Land Trust is working on getting enough to, together to uh, start its own name fund. And a lot of, that's been a movement that you've helped promote and I think it's an excellent movement. So, you know, that's one thing we helped support because we were involved with. There's the scholarship fund and you involve uh, community members in, as part of, of choosing the, the recipients. And memorial funds. So there's a lot of different ways that this foundation has made it possible for pretty wide participation. And you don't necessarily have to have a lot of money to participate. If someone asked this question, and, and if you could answer it with three words, and I'm going to ask both of you, Ben Coe is, Peggy Coe is, three things. There's going to be a long pause here. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> That's exactly what I was hoping for. Devoted to family, community, and loving God and loving our neighbor as ourselves. How could I top that one? <laughs> Give it a shot. <laughs> Sorry about that. Yeah, right. <laughs> I... That wasn't three words, was it? No. If I see that something needs to be done, I try and do it. I try to give my best when I do something. I guess I try to see humor in situations, too. Uh, I think laughter is a, a wonderful part of living. He makes me laugh every day, so it's wonderful. <laughs> Can I add one? Wonderful and great friend to many. Thank you. That's very nice. It's true. <laughs> <laughs>
We've known you I'm a one long of them. time. <laughs> <laughs> and that's an important thing, to be a friend. Oh, not, everybody, not everybody knows how to do that. Yeah, I feel that we have lots of friends. You do. But they're around the country and across the border, and friends are a real treasure. You're right. And they're the ones that help us out when we need help, give us joy. Well, we certainly appreciate the fact that you chose this area as your home many years ago to be able to, to give the way that you have. And you know, I don't want to speak for Randy, but I, I feel like what, you've, what you have done, whether it's through the Community Foundation or in the community and the agencies you've been a part of, is the impact behind what you've done is really immeasurable. And it's made the community so much better. And very good example of what philanthropy means. And I, we hope that those that hear this, and particularly the younger generation that hears this, can understand and follow the example that you have set forth for the rest of us. And we appreciate you sharing your story on, on the podcast as well. Well, thank you for the opportunity because it really has been an opportunity. It's nice to be able to talk about what you believe in and uh, particularly when it's something as important as philanthropy. Well, thank you for believing in, in this area and the mission of, of this community. And thanks again to each of you for listening to the Northern New York Community Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and a major thanks to WPBS-TV and the Northern New York Community Foundation for their support and production of the podcast. Please come back and join us again for another inspiring story from the heart of your community. Northern New York Community Podcast, stories from the heart of our community.